You are listening to Walking Home from the ICU. We will be exploring how to save and preserve lives in the ICU. All opinions and views shared are unaffiliated with any organization. If your team is ready to improve patient outcomes, check out the website www.daytoniceuconsulting.com for information about webinars and consulting services. patient in the ICU brings a breadth of wisdom and insight. I am excited to have an intensivist, frequent ICU patient and delirium survivor, nutrition researcher, dancer, and incredible human being, Dr. Wishmeyer on the podcast this episode. Dr. Wishmeyer, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Can you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Paul Wishmeyer, and I am a professor of surgery and anesthesiology at Duke University Medical Center and School of Medicine. What that means in real life that I do is actually an intensive care physician. So I, I practice in, in our intensive care units. And then I also am the director of the TPN and nutrition service at Duke. And so my, my typical day there is I spend some of my time, or a lot of my time, more than half of it doing research in the areas of nutrition and exercise to help ICU patients and surgery yeah. patients recover. And then some of my time as an ICU physician and they work in our surgical and trauma ICU. And then some of my time on my nutrition and TPN team working with them. So a little bit of, little bit of everything every day is a little different. Well, I have been admiring your work for a long time. You have quite the following on Instagram. You've been coming out with a lot of studies lately. So mm -hmm. I would invite everyone I'll put on the blog, your handle for Instagram, so we can keep late up on the latest and current with your research that you're doing. And then you've had a lot of, a lot of personal experiences in the ICU as a patient. Do you mind sharing kind of what your journey has been? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the reason I went into medicine, honestly, was when I was 15, I was diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis, and suddenly went from being sort of your normal high school student playing soccer, playing basketball on my, my JV team, and to suddenly being told, you know, you're going to come into the hospital and you're not going to eat for the next six weeks. And we're going to put an IV in your arm and we're going to feed you through your arm. And, and this is just how it's going to be. And, and that was really shocking. I had never been in the hospital before. And, and so for all this to kind of evolve very quickly over the Christmas holiday of my freshman year of high school, you know, I suddenly went from being this normal kid to suddenly I was in the bathroom 15, 20 times a day and bleeding and my hemoglobin was low. And, you know, I, I think from the very start as a patient, I realized a couple of things. One, that doctors weren't very nice people, at least a lot of the doctors I interacted with. And I really felt like, and, and still do sometimes, and I think this is a big part of why I went into medicine is that we're, I think patients are often seen as jobs to be done or boxes to be checked on a list. And, and I think sometimes in how busy physicians and especially young physicians are in their lives, they forget there's a person laying there that that is is feeling and suffering and experiencing all these these things you're doing to them. And you, you know, it started early just with the simple procedures now that of course we anesthetize people for, but things like colonoscopies and and central line placements and things I think that we often take for granted, you know, I found unbelievably barbaric at times. I'd you know be laying on the table and 
you know, this is before they used sedation for any of these things. And I would move or something and they would blame me for why the procedure was taking so long. And they would tell me, if you just held still, we'd be done sooner. And, and this, this would all go better if, if it, you know, or even when I had a, my first central line placed for TPN, I can remember the, the gastroenterology fellow digging around in my chest for a subclavian line. And even at 15, I realized, I said to him after about 45 minutes, I, I thought to myself under the drape, aren't you awfully close to my lung? And, and he even said, oh, maybe I am and we should come back tomorrow. And, and so I, I think we forget that, you know, we just see a procedure to be done, but underneath that drape is this person who can't see anything other than they know the giant needles coming at their neck. And it's pretty terrifying. And so I, I think I realized that, gosh, I think I want to go into medicine and I hope I can help physicians be better understanding what it's like to be that patient under the drape or be that patient who's undergoing this procedure, who's, you know, so confused and, and delirious. They, they don't know who they are and, and they don't know where they are. And, and I think a lot of the experiences really changed sort of a, who am I am as a physician, but be who am I am as a person. And I, I really try to convey that to the people I work with. Wow. How do your personal experiences with delirium impact how you approach patient care as an intensivist? So pretty significantly, you know, I think my first experience with delirium was when I was 15, my colon perforated and I got peritonitis and was rushed to the OR and woke up in the surgical ICU. And I can remember seeing, feeling like I was in the woods. I remember it vividly, actually. I, I thought I was in the woods and there were deer and trees and it actually was all very pleasant. And then I remember telling the surgical resident about it. And of course, when I was 15, they had me seeing child psych because they thought IBD was a psychiatric disease back there, a stress-related disease. And and the, and the surgery resident, the psych resident said, oh, we can fix that. We'll give you this big dose of this drug called Haldol. And so they gave me this big slug of Haldol. And the first night I got it, suddenly within a few minutes, I felt like I fell down like 10 or 12 floors, my, my, my hospital room suddenly had multiple floors and stairways between the floors and my body fell down this and I shattered on the, on the ground, like this bright lit ground and my body shattered into a thousand pieces and each piece had a tag on it. And I had to go up and down the stairs of my hospital room, putting my body back together piece by piece, each of these little tags being, being part of where I was supposed to put each piece. Um, and I spent the whole night doing that, it seemed like. And I remember telling the resident the next day and they said, oh, we just didn't give you enough of that drug. And so we just need to give you more. You're still having these delirious moments. And so they gave me a bigger dose the next night. And then I started to hear voices suddenly and my arms went back and my eyes rolled back and I was like cramped in this position. And the nurse didn't know what was wrong with me. They thought I was a crazy teenager. But of course, anyone who knows a little bit about some of these drugs and has worked in ICU at any length of time would know that's a dystonic reaction, but that wasn't recognized till the next morning when the chief chief resident came in and realized that I had been dystonic the whole night and gave me a little Benadryl, but I had a tremor for a month after that. And so I think it made me realize that, that, you know, not only can delirium be really disturbing to patients, but the treatments that we give people for them, although they make them quieter and calmer, don't always put them in a place that's very pleasant at all. I actually wrote a paper about that falling off the 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 the, the balcony of my room experience and got an A plus plus in college on a college essay. But it was really it was really compelling, right? It, it took what was actually not so unpleasant um, delirium and made it very unpleasant delirium. Although I guess I was quieter and easier to care for, it, it wasn't always so pleasant. And so I, I think it's made me really acutely aware of it. I experienced it as, as, as your listeners wouldn't know, but I just had a major surgery in April as well. Underwent a 13 hour operation for adhesions and ended up in my own surgical ICU where I work. 
And I'd never really experienced sort of the, the scary delirium, the anxious delirium before where you knew what you're experiencing wasn't real, but you couldn't help believe it was real. Like you felt like people were out to get you and that people were chasing you and you had this very distorted view of the world and the anxiety that one that was really compelling. This last hospital stay, I don't know if it's age or how sick I was. I developed peritonitis, was in the ICU more than a week, was really terrifying and really compelling. And so, and, and that was with me being quite mobile and, and even, you know, quite active after surgery, trying to mobilize and things. The only thing that made it better was Presidex, honestly. None of the other meds made it better. And, and I don't use antipsychotics except for when a patient's at risk to themselves or others. And so I'm not a believer in antipsychotics. Some of it's the data and some of it obviously is my experience with them. But, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The data, of course, isn't good for them either. So so for those of you who are providers out there, right, we know there's no data. There's some great reviews and meta-analyses on that, that they don't treat delirium. They will make hyperactive delirium hypoactive. I experienced that firsthand. It does make you sort of locked in a little bit chemically, but a lot of times the experiences you're having when you're locked in are really unpleasant. And so um, I, I try to avoid those and try to use, obviously, the non-pharmacological things. Every day on rounds, I'm the first one to open all the windows and I tell every patient that I see that the bed is is bad for them and that that if they can spend every moment out of the bed and in a chair, except for when they're sleeping or having procedures done, that's what they should do. And so I'm a big believer in those. But I, I was blown away by how effective Presidex was in really taking away that fear and anxiety that I, that I had. I'd never received it before as a patient, and it was really profound. Now, the problem with it is, of course, you can't go to the floor on it, and so we try to get people off of it. And we were they were trying to get me off of it as well. So I only got it for a day or two, but you were still able to interact, communicate. You were a ras of yeah. zero, yeah. hopefully. Yeah. I, you know, aside from the period I spent intubated, which ironically being intubated in your own ICU was interesting too. What I remember being intubated was looking, I thought I was caring for a patient in the bed, not <laughs> actually being the patient in the bed. And when they, when they finally extubated me, it was an attending, obviously that I knew and and, and the respiratory therapist I knew. And I said to them, I'm like, oh my God, I have quite a story to tell you guys. I just had this intense dream that I was caring for a patient in this bed and talking about extubating them when the reality was th that was them talking about extubating me. <laughs> what I remember is I was on the other side and, and it was really vivid. I, I don't remember being intubated actually. I remember seeing someone else in the bed intubated and, and, and somehow caring for them. And it was really real. It really felt very real. But the layer of my experience then in the next few days I knew it wasn't real. Like I felt like I was being chased by terrorists at times, or I, I was, people were coming to get me. And I, it was every time I closed my eyes, I would feel these intense, like I was at a part of a story suddenly and people were out to get me. And when I opened them, I knew it wasn't real, but I couldn't make it go away. And so it was this really paranoid delirium almost that we see our patients get all the time, right? We can't understand why they feel this way, but it was really scary, even though I really knew it wasn't real. I still couldn't pull myself out of it a lot of times. And so it was, it was, it made the hospitals, the, the ICU stay tough. The nurses were amazing. I mean, they were so understanding, but, but it was really. Did they start Presidex because you were agitated? Yeah, I asked. Well, I, and I think they started it after I'd been intubated and, and given the, the delirium I was describing, they started it. And then while I was receiving it, I said, God, I feel much better. I, I was able to vocalize that. Uh, of course, unfortunately, the next day, they and we all wanted to stop because I wanted to try to get out of the ICU. But that next two nights, of course, it's hard to get a floor bed nowadays. And so patients stay in the ICU much longer. We couldn't get one. And so I was stuck. And so it was, it was the next two nights were pretty unpleasant. And I, I wasn't maybe the nicest patient either because I was so 
it seemed really real. I was really scared at times, even though I knew I was probably safe. How did mobility help during that delirium? I mean, enormously, right? The, obviously, this delirium primarily came, and I think it's true for our patients that we care for too, is at night, right? So during the day, I would spend the majority of the day in a chair or walking. I walked around and around and around the ICU and, and you know, they wouldn't let me go very far, but so I just walked circles, but that is tremendously helpful. And maybe a little bit, we'll talk a little bit about sort of the nutrition and the recovery pieces that, that are so important, but that definitely helps, right? You get out of the room, get off your, get up on your feet and out of the bed. It, it, it goes away largely, it, it almost entirely. But then of course, night comes and you need to sleep and have some pattern and the nights are really difficult. What would you have the ICU community understand and then change about how we approach sedation and mobility in the ICU as an intensivist and a survivor? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think we really need to drive home to our providers, our patients and their families, especially that, you know, I think people see people who are quite sick and think, oh, they need to be in bed, they need to rest. And that's how you get better. Well, that, that isn't how you get better, right? Clearly there's, there's times right at the beginning when people are so acutely ill that, you know, they're too sick to move, but there's very few people that are too sick to move. That's pretty rare. You know, I had that big operation and was, you know, in the OR for 13 hours and within 12 hours the next morning I was up walking and, you know, that's the key role of regional anesthesia, right? I had an epidural and it worked really well. I had three of them actually. I was in the hospital about a month and I had three epidurals. They're so essential. So regional anesthesia is so helpful to getting people mobilized. But I think, setting the expectation with the patient and the family and with the providers that the bed is really what is the most, the biggest risk to the patient once they get past whatever reason they're there for. It's something we maybe don't do a great job of expectation setting with, even if they're not walking, even if they just sit in the chair all day, you know, the, the core muscle use that requires and the clarity of thought it requires to keep yourself upright and engaged because you're much more likely to do that if you're out of the bed, I think is so helpful. And, you know, my experience through my life, and I've had 27 different surgeries and been in the ICU quite a few times, never quite as sick as this time, but has been typically I lose 40 or 50 pounds. It takes me one to two years of aggressive exercise and nutritional recovery to get back the same weight and strength that I had before I had those operations or ICU stays. Um, so this day, we really went to with a different mindset. You know, I, this one was elective. Some of them might have been emergent. So elect, elective surgery helps because you can plan for it a little bit. But but then I had a couple of really serious complications. I had a GI fistula form and had two more emergent operations, stool pouring out of my abdomen. I was really quite sick, sicker than I've ever been before. Didn't eat for three months. I was on TPN. But, you know, we in the nutrition field, and I'm going to make a plea for all of us to, to really update how we practice, have really, I think worked hard in the last 10 years to move the field forward. And one of those things that we've done is a group of us from around the world led by the Europeans got a grant from the European Nutrition Society to build a better metabolic card, a better endocometer. Because, you know, we would never give pressors without measuring an A-line or having an A-line present. We wouldn't put people on ventilators without measuring blood gases, but we feed people all the time with no data as to how much to feed them. And we know that the equations are completely inaccurate for the most part. And really we're overfeeding and underfeeding all the time, which has its own morbidity and mortality associated with it. So we really needed a device that would measure. And so we worked with a company through this grant to build this, what we think is a better device. And then we did the validation studies across the world. Duke was one of the centers in the U S that did it. And I was helpful there. And, um, 
this device is highly accurate, measures in five minutes, can be run by a dietitian or a nurse, or, you know, we're, we're really advocating for nurse and dietitian teams to, to run these in the future and it reads in 15 minutes and it calibrates itself. And so I was lucky enough, of course, we have some of these devices Duke to be able to know what my metabolic needs were before and after surgery. And so when I was on TPN, the device was showing I needed 3000 calories at rest, but then with my rehab, I really needed 4,000 for the activity factor. Well, no one else would ever write a TPN for 4,000 calories without having data to support it. And so I've always given myself 2,500 or 2,000 thinking that was enough on healthy, but I've always lost so much muscle and weight that I'm weak and weak for months to years afterwards. Well, this time I gave myself 4,000 calories and I lost at most 10 pounds, even being septic and peritonitis and edema and all the other things. And I gained all that weight back within a month of discharge while still on TPN. And eight weeks later, I was, my wife and I danced competitively, we tango dance, and I was able to lift her over my head eight weeks. The minute my surgeon said I could pick up more than 10 pounds, I said, well, can I start dancing with my wife again? And she said, if it doesn't hurt, do it. And, and so I was just as strong. I've never had that happen before. I've for 25 years, I've taught it's mandatory to lose strength and to have the ICU acquired weakness and the physical dysfunction, and it takes a year to get better. That's not true. I was the sickest I've ever been. And by using these more personalized metabolic cart guided methods, starting TPN early. I started within 48 hours, which now the data says TPN reduces infection in surgical and ICU patients when given earlier, some new trials have come out and definitely doesn't increase the risk. I was able to keep my weight, keep my strength, and clearly early mobility played a role in that. I, I was walking the whole time despite being sick and moving. And I worked with the occupational therapist to learn to do band exercises that wouldn't stress my incision. And so I did those at home and in the hospital, but nonetheless, most of it was walking in the hospital and, and then just getting the right nutritional delivery. And I didn't lose weight and I didn't lose strength. And it was night and day. And it's totally changed how I teach our residents. I just taught a lecture today to our IC fellows. And I said, you know, guys, I used to say you had a little weight and there was nothing we could do about it. Well, it's not true. Oh, I have so many mixed feelings about all of that. I mean, it's so exciting to know that we have this technology, that you've had these outcomes, that you're doing this with patients. At the same time, a little bit pained knowing that for decades, patients have suffered so much that could have been prevented. Yes. Three things, right? I mean, sedation management, obviously, mobility and nutrition. How do we standardize this? Yeah, it's tough, right? It's and I always lead all my lectures and I say, you know, the really critical thing on rounds every day we need to be doing is not only what do we need to do for the patient to get them through the day, but what can we do today that ensures they have a life worth leading a month from now when they leave the hospital? I mean, and so ICU recovery has to start the day of ICU admission or for surgical patients and cancer patients before, right? Prehabilitation is really important too, but it's got to start the minute they hit the unit, right? It's it sounds as though you, you were in one of those units in Utah, and I know some of the people that were there with you that did early mobilization. I, I actually was a fellow with J.P. Kress when he was doing the Schweiker trial, the first trial that really showed that you could mobilize an ARDS patient and walk them around the room while they were ventilated and do it safely. That trial was going on while I was a fellow at University of Chicago with J.P., and he really was a leader along with the physical therapist he worked with in teaching us we could do this, right? And I know you experienced it firsthand. That that has to become standard of care, and 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 I, I see patients that aren't even, have not, have never been intubated that I don't see get out of bed for weeks and weeks sometimes, and it just, it, it, we have to change that mindset and that culture, but even an intubated patient, right, is somebody who can mobilize, and I know you know a lot about that and, and so few hospitals do it. And 
It's so essential. But we have to we have to overcome this assumption that that is just par for the course. Right. And so your experience really exposes to with an extreme example of how different this could be. I mean, you know very well what your normal outcome is. Oh yeah. And something like the metabolic carts, obviously it's going to be an expense, but what do you have data-wise showing the outcomes right. and maybe even difference in healthcare savings? So there are now two meta-analyses that show that the use of indirect calorimetry or metabolic cart to guide nutrition over in the ICU reduces mortality by about 20 to 25%. Wow. So there's two published meta-analyses that show that. Um, and so we, you know, we at Duke tried to sell this concept to our healthcare hospital administration. And, you know, we, we showed them how, you know, you can code and bill for doing metabolic carts and dietitians can run it. So it's not like you have to add physician time or, or add like the, those of us that are really expensive to the hospitals would do this. Um, but in the end, they said to us, yeah, that's all nice. And we showed them the clinical improvements that could come of it. But they, all of them at the end of the day, our, 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 our CMO and others said, this just seems like the right thing to do, obviously, right? It's, it comes back to the idea that, again, we wouldn't, we wouldn't give vancomycin without measuring vanco levels. We wouldn't give you know, norepinephrine without measuring blood pressure, we shouldn't be giving nutrition without measuring what our patients need. And, and they, in the end, approved a team for this and a device to get this. The devices aren't that expensive, actually, relative to most instruments, because it's just was obviously the right thing to do. But that said, we do have data. We do have all that kind of cost information that goes in. And if you have listeners out there who work in hospitals and want to get this, we can share. We're writing a paper, our dietitians and myself, on how to sell this to you know a hospital administrator, right? What's what's the case for metabolic cart team in your hospital? And so we have all of the sort of benchmarking and cost data and evidence base already compiled because we really want to help people do this better. Oh, that's great. And when you have that out, we'll include it on the blog as well as links to the studies that you've mentioned or alluded to. Yeah. How can we also have a more collaborative team between PT, OT, nutritionists, nurses, how do we yeah. bring this all together? Obviously we can nutrition, that alone makes a huge difference, but how do we compound that with mobility? Yeah. So it's so critical, right? So our medical ICU, um, Dan Gilstrap, who's our medical director here at Duke and our medical ICU had a really cool idea during COVID because he was really frustrated by the lack of mobility, right? COVID patients are the hardest to take care of because they're isolated and you have to gown up and give love up and mask up to go in their room. And so he started a mobility rounds every day at 11 o'clock. And he is unbelievably committed. He goes around with his PTs, his speech and swallow folks, his RDs, one of the fellows, the IC fellows, and then each nurse at each bedside and, and then OTs and PTs and all the other folks, they go around and they see each patient for about five minutes. And their only focus is those things. Why are they being fed? Have they been out of bed? What are we doing for delirium? What are we doing for speech and swallow, obviously? And then a case manager talks about sort of where's the family at and all of this. And because I can't emphasize enough the role of the family, right? I think there's some really cool trials too that have come out in the last two months that have shown that family presence in the ICU is reducing length of stay and improving outcomes clinically, right? Because I think we we all, unfortunately, were, did ourselves a disservice keeping families out of the ICU during COVID. And I can say from a patient's point of view, that was devastating. I One of the reasons I chose to have this big operation electively was I was hospitalized in Hawaii on a vacation with a bowel obstruction in February, and they wouldn't let my wife in. And I'm a disaster when I'm sick. And, and the physicians there had a really hard time. They'd never seen a patient like me and did some sort of medically questionable things just because they'd never seen a patient who had such a complicated GI anatomy. And, and 
I was a mess and it was really scary. And, you know, if I just would have had my wife there with me or a family member there with me, none of the, a lot of the things that happened during that hospitalization wouldn't have happened. And I, I don't know how people survive without their families. I, 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 my heart goes out to everybody in COVID who was stuck without a family member in the room. It, it just broke my heart in our own unit when I was watching it. And as a patient, I, I, I can't even tell you how important that family piece is. And so I think that's essential as well. But anyway, we do these rounds and, um, it's, I've been really amazed how successful they've been at mobilizing even intubated patients suddenly where we weren't doing that in our MICU at Duke before. Now they've been very successful doing it. And so it takes a champion and then it takes the team, obviously, to, 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 to work with the champion, perhaps, as whoever that person could be. And it doesn't have to be a physician, although I think physicians do, do, do need to be engaged in all of this. But that was one thing that I, I watched be really successful in our institution. And then I think in institutions that have it, our research work, we just got a big grant from the NIH to do a home high-intensity mobility therapy program where we're bringing our ICU physical therapists into the post-hospital setting to coach. So we give patients an iPhone and an iWatch, and we do basically Olympic-style CPET testing, like an Olympic athlete would have a VO2 test. We, we have a Bluetooth mask. We can do that in the hospital room with the patients, and we get their VO2 peak and tie that to a heart rate, and we teach them to do intervals, doing steps or other things. Then they go home, and they do that for three months, and their physical therapist from the MICU who cared for them in the hospital coaches them at home over the video, and we have the heart rate recording on the watch, and, and then we titrate up and down their exercise, mobility, and strength. They do some balance and strength training too, but a lot of it's this high intensity heart rate guarded, titrated to their ability personally training that we did. And the NIH gave us a, about a $4 million grant to do that. We're working with Vanderbilt and UAB and Ohio State to do that trial. And so I think if we can engage our physical therapists outside of even the ICU and create this continuity of care, I think that's an exciting opportunity too, to really improve upon what we're doing in the ICU. Oh, I love that. And that's that's your big focus, right? Building the bridge between the two worlds because you've lived both of them. Yes. And I loved what you said about determining life after the ICU by what we do the moment they come into the ICU. As a survivor, what would that mean? What would that have meant to you maybe in these other hospitals where you've been at had that approach been taken? Yeah, I mean, I think a real emphasis on the uh, sort of the the things we know create survivors of patients, right? The things that reduce delirium and the focusing on mobility and getting out of the bed, even if it's just to the chair, right? I mean, even just being in the chair and that's, I have to tell you the whole time I was in the hospital, I spent probably more hours in the chair than I did in the bed. Um, and I would consciously try to stay in the chair, even, even though I didn't necessarily need to be, right? Just there's something about being out of that bed that I think is so important. It, you know, and we can think of the medical reasons, right? It reduces blood clots and it reduces pneumonia and it, you know, strengthens your core muscles and improves your ability to deep breathe and to cough. But, but I think cognitively and mentally, it's huge too, right? It, it just, it, it forces you to engage. And I think, I think just really even working with the most challenging patients to get out of bed, just to get them into a chair is a huge step forward. And then clearly, I think we need to all be better at mobilizing people, then it or not. To, to walk and to, and to get around. And I think that's going to take, you know, clearly we don't have enough nurses or physical therapists, but it's going to take more staff. I mean, I think that's a really key part of what this is going to take and commitment to do that. And those are hard people to find right now after COVID. But, but I think really emphasizing the other things like the nutrition, I think there's a role for anabolic agents like testosterone and oxyandrol. And I was a burn intensive care physician for many years in both pediatric and adult settings before I came to Duke. 
And, you know, in the burn world, where I really think critical care is, is done amazingly well, they have incredible focus on physical therapy. But then as part of that, we often give, we give almost every patient that comes in oxandrolone, which is an anabolic agent, because we know that the anabolic hormone levels in our patients drop to zero within three or four days of ICU admission. And so if, if you were in a third world burn unit in India or South Africa or, or anywhere in the world, you'd be getting this drug, this anabolic agent has been shown to reduce mortality, to reduce length of stay, to improve healing. Um, and we really like oxandrolone because it's oral and it doesn't virilize. So woman or man can take it for long periods of time, but we don't have that at Duke, but we, I use regular testosterone quite frequently in patients. And I've had really good luck, especially in the quite elderly folks who really have poor anabolic signaling, right? You can give them all the nutrition and exercise you want, but if they don't have a signal to create more muscle, it, they, they have a lot of anabolic resistance. It's very hard for them. And I've had really good luck, especially in the eighties and 90 year olds adding, say, even just an IM testosterone shot every two weeks. I have to get it because my don't reabsorb cholesterol. And so mine's very low, but I just learned that about a year or two ago. And so that was another small difference, right? And this stay for me is I didn't know my testosterone levels were low because of my underlying short gut. So I've been put back on that. And then I stayed on that. And I think it did help me recover. And I've definitely watched other patients it help recover. And I think that's the, of the three things, exercise, um, rehab, nutrition, and then anabolic signalisms patients who need them. I think is another chance we have, because if, if these people were burning units, they would be standard of care. They'd all be getting them. You can't even do studies in it. It's so common around the world, but it's never really made it into any other unit. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. And I think culturally, we don't really value the muscular system. We, we don't. don't talk about it. We don't panic yeah. when it's failing. We don't preserve it. Yeah. So what you're describing is this deep, almost reverence for the role that the muscles play and surviving the ICU and then quality of life after. And I, I'm just impressed by your own athleticism and your own focus and preparation for surgery by building up your muscles, knowing that that was going to not yeah. just be about yeah. aesthetics or even able to dance and lift your wife, but for actual survival. It is, you know, I, when we coach patients, like we, we coach a lot of patients before big cancer, before hormone transplant too, it's not just surgery, but before surgery, before hormone transplant, we say that you're training for the marathon of your life. This is just like training for a marathon. And you have to be ready and you have to have that mindset that I'm going to have to work just like I would work at, like if I was going to run a marathon, I'm going to have to work at it. I'm going to have to train. My nutrition is going to have to be good. I'm going to have to be persistent, consistent with my exercise and all the other parts of my life. It's the same, right? And and I think that is the message we really need to be conveying to people that there's so many things they can do before they undergo this big hit if they can anticipate it, like transplants, whether they be your organ or bone marrow transplants, anticipated major surgeries. But in recovering from COVID or critical illness, when it's not anticipated, it's not so different, right? It's There's a training component to it. And we know there's a growing body of data that shows that the muscle mass you go into the ICU with is highly predictive of your survival of the ICU independent of it just by itself, right? So if we measure muscle mass by ultrasound or CT scan, and we know that the muscle mass you go into a major operation with or cancer chemotherapy with is highly predictive of your survival and complication rate. So your muscles really your metabolic reserve to survive that injury, to fuel your immune system, to fight off infection and to give you that chance to recover. And so we're getting better at measuring muscle mass. There's now single slice CT10 techniques. Harvard's actually billing 
Medicare for them successfully, they have less radiation than a chest X-ray and you can get muscle mass in about five seconds. We do it by ultrasound. We have a muscle specific ultrasound called the muscle sound device that it was built for athletes. It was built for Tour de France athletes and bikers, but we use it in the hospital all the time. And you can, in a few minutes with a little probe, that's about as big as your iPhone, it plugs into your iPhone and it's an ultrasound probe that gives you really precise muscle measurements and can tell us if the patient's eating. It tells us about muscle glycogen using an ultrasound technique and so I think you're said the muscle is really critical to recovery and survival. Do you use that technology to track muscular atrophy? Yes. During critical illness, that that's incredible. I'm just wondering, you know, when a patient comes in in shock for whatever reason, we are panicked about perfusion to the vital organs. Yep. But every patient that comes in, we should be panicked about feeding and utilizing and preserving the muscles in the same way, making sure that that organ is preserved just like we do with the kidney and the liver and the brain. And we, how do we make that shift? You're doing so much to advocate and even provide Uh the evidence behind it. How do we culturally make that shift? That's the big question. This podcast repeatedly, Uh the culture. I think uh, promotion of the data that shows what a key role, say your existing muscle mass plays in a, your risk of adverse consequences and survival, and, and B, it's sort of key role in metabolic reserve is, is one of the first steps. I think a lot of people don't know that's true. You know, one of the interesting things a lot of critical care physicians are now beginning to learn is, I often ask my residents this, what is the best BMI to be to survive critical illness, trauma, cancer? You know, I, I'm like, what do you think the best BMI to be is? And they often will say something in the 20s, right? But that's not the answer. The answer is 31. And so the we know there's a, a straight down line of survival increasing as BMI increases all the way out to 40 in ARDS and other lung injuries and, and in critical illness as well. And mortality really jumps at BMIs below 25. So lots of very healthy fit people have BMIs that sit between 20 and 25. But what we've shown is for every one point lower your BMI is, and this was in the blue journal, one of the big critical care journals, you have a 7% decreased chance of recovering functional independence after ICU. So again, if you're talking about a BMI difference of 10, that's a 60, 70% difference in functional recovery from 30 to 20. And, and we have hints from some of our TPN studies that show that people with low BMI who don't get TPN have much higher complication rates and potentially even mortality as well. So even BMIs of 20, 22, 24, that we sort of think of as a healthy number, those are not the best BMIs to be to survive most illnesses and cancer. And that all comes back, we think, to muscle mass, right? BMI is a poor man's surrogate for muscle mass. And so I, I think we could show if you have a BMI of 31 and you have very low muscle mass, you don't do nearly as well as someone who has a BMI of 31 that has a very high muscle mass. And so it's really your metabolic reserve that's very predictive of not only your survival, but then your ability to functionally recover as well. Amazing. And now we have the data, we have the technology to yeah. track all of that, as well as make the actual changes in practice, we just have to bring it to the bedside, right? Yeah. Any other recommendations you would make for the ICU community? Yeah, I mean, I think the other big change I've watched happen at Duke, and I think a lot of us have pushed for this, and now it's really catching on, is we do start TPN much sooner, right? We have this really large body of data now. There's been four large randomized trials and thousands of ICU patients published in JAMA, Lancet, New England Journal, that have shown that TPN is not associated with infection in any way, shape, or form. And the new Aspen nutrition guidelines, which are sort of the guidelines we use in the U.S. in critical care, say it's just as safe to start PN early as it is to start EN early, and they can be used interchangeably, which is a major course deviation from what most people were taught that PN is associated with infection, and you should not use it 
almost ever. And, you know, that's just not true anymore. And our guidelines reflect it. And even our data now is showing the, some of the last few studies that have been done show significant reductions in infection when PN is given early, when parental nutrition is given early. And so we have moved in our ICU, we have some studies going on in this area, but we do it clinically too. If, if a person comes in with a major abdominal wound or abdominal trauma or major abdominal surgery, especially open abdomens, we start TPN at 48 hours, whether they're well-nourished or, or not, or malnourished, because we've, we've been able to show our dietitians have that they don't get fed for a week. And by that time, right, a major physical injury like that is really going to put them behind. I, I was that person, right? I was that patient where in the past it took, I could lose 20 kilos in 17 days. I have pictures of me from when I was sick in 2014 because I didn't get enough of nutrition early enough. We, we waited too long and we didn't give enough. And so now I think the earlier use of PN correctly by a knowledgeable dietitian or pharmacist can really be something that people could change right now in their ICU and really make some, I think, good inroads. And then I think the addition of metabolic cart, I think learning to use your occupational physical therapist to use those rubber bands, right? Those rubber bands that are like about a dollar a piece can do amazing things for, for A, the mood, but B, the strength and recovery. And they can do it safely. They don't stress an incision. They don't stress the patient. They, they can come in all different sizes. So I think there's some really simple, practical things that people can do that can make a huge difference. And then getting families back in the ICU, I think this, I hope we never go through, and if we go through another pandemic, I hope we never go through a pandemic where we keep the families out. And, and I know that there's been a lot of backwards and back and forth about, oh, we don't want the families to come in and spread infection or get infected, but patients need their families. I can't stress that enough. And I think that's, I hope that message continues to be heard. There is so much to dissect from the pandemic and how we've handled it and the outcomes, families, absolutely. And just speaking of nutrition, I'm, I'm thinking about what I was hearing from many teams saying that they weren't really feeding their patients on high flow that were barely eating. Any thoughts on that? How did you, yeah. how did you manage that? Cause I, I know in that awesome. walking COVID ICU, we were doing feeding tubes on patients with high flows that weren't eating. They yeah. were eating enough and we were intervening, but many teams were like, thought, well, they had their swallows intact. Therefore they don't need a feeding tube. Yeah. We actually just published some data around this. We use the premier database, which for those who don't know what that is, it's a giant hospital database that has 900 hospitals, millions of patients. We were able to get a 75 hospital cohort that contributed their COVID data. And we found 265,000 COVID patients. And we found about 900 of them that were in the ICU on a ventilator. And we looked at, because we'd heard that same story that even the ventilated patients, because COVID infects the gut, right? There's these ACE2 receptors in the gut. And so COVID causes a lot of GI problems. And so they're really hard to feed. And so we said, well, let's see what's actually happening in the US across hospitals. And we found that about 40% of COVID patients on a ventilator, right? Who could have had a tube down feeding them, didn't get fed till after day three. And the average time to feeding in those patients for TP and orange nutrition was 10 days. So about half the COVID population across any given hospital in the US, if you extrapolate this out, isn't being fed for 10 days at all. And so that includes ENR-TBN. And so I think that's devastating, right? And that doesn't include the high flow patients. I think what you describe is a really unique challenge, right? The patient on high flow who is too short of breath to eat, right? I mean, and that happened all the time. It's still happening right now. We have a lot of COVID patients right now like that. We did put feeding tubes in those patients frequently. I think that is a really important intervention you can make for them because it's just eating is a lot of, there's a lot of work of breathing and eating. And it's very hard for these patients to do. And I will also advocate that, that the thing to emphasize those patients is they need to be drinking oral nutrition supplements, the high protein oral nutrition supplements, the boosts, the insurers, the little protein drinks, 
they have really robust data that they reduce mortality and improve outcomes and lots of studies now. There's like from the premier database again, and there's about a million and a half patient study that showed that just putting those on the trays of patients reduces length of stay 20% and saves every dollar you spend on those little drinks, saves $52 in hospital costs. So they're the most cost-effective intervention actually that we've seen described in the literature. They're better than the influenza vaccine. They're better than aspirin. They're better than all kinds of preventive medicine things. But very few people think they're important enough to give and, and don't. I think the key message you give that I give patients is these drinks are not optional and they're not food. These are medicine and these are going to change your recovery and give you the chance to get better and keep you strong and keep your immune system fortified. Your immune system depends on amino acids to function. So yeah, I know you may not love the way they taste, but we don't love the way cough medicine tastes either, but we take it. And so these are two or three of these a day is essential to your outcome and your survival. And so I, I talk about them as medicine. And I think that would, I think be a good step for anyone else who's seeing patients, those, those little high protein drinks are really critical to recovery. And we have really robust clinical trial data, randomized clinical trial data to show that. I have learned so much by doing this podcast and I get little pings of guilt oh. <laughs> in little moments. And I, with, when it comes to mobility, that was the approach taken in that awake and walk in ICU is mobility is life-saving intervention. It's not optional. It's like refusing an antibiotic, but never did I think about a boost being yeah. one of those. Those little boosts, those lynchers, they are lifesavers. There was a large randomized trial that was done in 76 centers where they gave them for 90 days after discharge from hospital and it reduced mortality by half in the group that took them. And so, I mean, really compelling randomized trial data. I mean, there's been smaller trials that have shown that, but this was a large, almost 700 patient trial, 76 centers across the US, really compelling data for, for their benefits. So I, I can't emphasize enough to people that little simple things like that huge difference in, in what we can do for people. And they're inexpensive, they're safe, they're, you know, all, all the things, sometimes pharmacology is not, these really check all the boxes. Wow. And I'm just thinking when patients come into the ICU, there's so much going on. We're so pressured to start all these things quickly, the fluid, the antibiotics, the, all the tests, everything, but I guess nutrition has to be right there along with it. The things that we're grabbing right away, which is such a change in perspective, but all of this requires a change. And I have to ask just for my own curiosity, was there a change in the culture or the morale of your team with these mobility rounds? Yeah. So, you know, it's in an ICU that I don't work routinely in. So it's been interesting to watch from afar, right? I worked in the surgical ICU and, you know, the medical ICU really started this in the midst of COVID and it is neat to watch them. I, it, it you know, and, and, and Dr. Gilstrap will, will say, you know, I really, it took some time, right. To, to convince people this idea that we could get these people out of bed on a ventilator, right. That was really scary for, for a group that had never done it before. And I think this is true in most ICs around the country, but soon right, it became very motivating and like people were proud. It was like a badge of honor that they could do it and, and that they could work as a team to make that happen. And they all became almost sort of began to expect that it was going to happen where before it was like, Oh my God, I can't believe that would ever happen. And then now it's like, when it's not happening, well, what's wrong. And yes. so it really led to a shift in thinking. And so we're trying to find ways now in our surgical IC, we don't, we are attending switch a little more often and all of us sort of are spread a little more thin. And, and, and Dan has made her like, we had one attending up there who made a real commitment to be there every day to do this. And so we're trying to find ways across our group. That's maybe there sort of less, less consistently, how can we work together to, to make this happen? Because it's been so successful in another one of our ICUs. And so I think 
it really shows what it shows is though this can happen and 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 one person who puts a group of people motivated people together can make a change and so i thought you know these these rehab rounds were 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 super successful and we we interact with them for our study too they're a great way for us to find out about patients who could be good candidates to go home on our exercise trials and and so we interact with them a lot it's really pretty neat and you get to see the difference in outcomes that it really makes in the long run which is what we don't usually get to see in the ICUs what happens and how did our interventions make an impact, right? Other than you pretty quickly see the difference in outcomes as far as their discharge disposition and length of stay and things like that, their functional status leaving the ICU. But that's really neat that your PTs get to see how they're doing after and what their lives are like, and then bring that back to the team. I think that would make such an impact in our perspective of our patients. And I, I know that we're burnt out, we're traumatized, yeah. People are leaving in, in masses. Yeah, unfortunately. I have caught so many glimpses of hope through mm-hmm. teams doing these changes. And yeah. I think this is part of our healing um, from the pandemic is to change our process of care and to have a difference in our environment and our approach and really remember why we're in critical care again. And mm-hmm. as I've worked with teams and seen them make those changes and hearing what they tell me about their morale and their fulfillment in their career, that's exciting. And I think that's what our clinicians deserve is to actually see patients get better and serve and succeed. I agree. I agree. It's so critical. I mean, it's so easy to get caught up in, in all the challenges of, of what we do every day. It's, it's, those are the moments I think that make it all worthwhile. And change is hard, but someday this will be as routine as giving an antibiotic, you know, talking so. through about, uh, about nutrition, assessing for it, mobility, those seem like really big, extra laborious things. And we do need to have the right staff support, but I just think about how proning was so difficult and laborious at the beginning. It was daunting. It took nine people in the room. We had to think through every little twist and turn. Now they flip them like pancakes. Is what I keep saying. You know, it's just, it's a routine and that's what we're going to fall into this routine of thinking about and acting on these elements of survivorship. So thank you so much for everything that you've shared. And I will Put links to everything that you've shared as well as your Instagram, because I think we have a lot more to learn from you. Yeah, if I could, and I can, if I can just leave you with, with one thought, because it really is the, the fundamental reason I'm in medicine is just remember there's, there's a, there's a patient laying there. And, and I think all of us as patients need to advocate for that, but all of us as providers do too. And just, if you can forbear me one story that really struck home for me and may make someone else reconsider how they, they act every day. When I was sick at the hospital I was at before, at one point, the hospital I worked at for 15 years, had surgery much like this one This I had this year. This was a number of years ago. I had an epidural in, and in the bathroom, I had an ostomy and I was trying to change my ostomy and I was bleeding and I was naked and I was in this little tiny bathroom and just almost in tears trying to struggle with my ostomy and, and my incision and everything. And the pain team came around to see me, right? And there's eight people on the pain team. There's medical students and residents and and nurses and different team members. And many of whom I've known for, in this case, 15 years, these are people I've known. And I was a professor there as well in in their department. And they knock on the door and they say, you know, we need to check on your epidural, right? We need to check your back. It it takes about 30 seconds to do. And I said, could you guys come back later? I'm I'm in the bathroom and I'm naked and I'm, I'm having all these issues. And and they said, well, no, we have a lot to do today. We just, we'll just come in anyway. And so they piled eight people into my little bathroom just to touch my back for 30 seconds because they didn't want to come back later. 
and these were all people I knew. And, and I'll never forget, I've never felt more vulnerable and more violated in my whole life than I did then. And it was by people I knew. And thank my wife walked in moments later and, and threw them all out of the room and told them never, ever to come back. And, and, and we said to each other, we said, God, if this is how they treat the people they know, how are the people they don't know getting treated? And, and so I think what they probably imagined was no big deal and was, was, was just part of the day for me is one of the single most traumatic memories I've ever had of having all these people come in and one of the more challenging moments that I'd ever faced sort of, which they didn't know, of course, but the reality was, you know, all I asked them to do was come back later and that was too much. And so I just think, you know, when a patient says I need a minute or, 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 you know, when it seems like it's a hassle for you to give a patient a break for what seems like something trivial, it, it, it often is not something trivial. And there's a person in there who's suffering and maybe they really just need a minute. And, you know, I'll never forget that moment. And, and I think it, it really spoke to me that it makes all of us have to look at what we do every day and, and remember there's a person in there who's suffering and that sometimes it, they deserve us to give them a minute. Wow. Thank you for sharing such a vulnerable moment. And I get another ping of guilt because I've easily fallen into the conveyor belt routine of patient care. And I think especially when we have a sedation, a deep sedation and mobility culture, you don't look in a patient's eyes. You don't hear their voice. You don't know who they are. It's so easy to treat them like they're a product on a conveyor belt. Yeah. Um, Yeah. They're not a box to be checked. And you coined the phrase create survivors, not victims. Yeah. And I just think that is such a huge part of humanizing the ICU is seeing them as a person listening to what they say, their requests, understanding their personal experience in that moment. Thank you so much for giving that perspective. Yeah. I just, I, I always hope that, especially for the young folks, the medical students, the young nurses, the young clinicians, you know, it's, sometimes seems trivial to us, but it's, it's definitely not trivial to, to, to the patient or to those of us laying in the bed. No. And I am hoping the next generation brings in this change, this touch, they're coming in with new energy and I hope they can help preserve that kind of compassion in the ICO. And and on the flip side, I have to say, I've never received such amazing care as the Duke surgical ICU nurses gave me as one of their own, right? It's tough to take care of your attending, I think. And and someone that you've worked with every day for years. And uh, they were unbelievable. It was the best care we've ever gotten. So, I mean, clearly it can be that good as well. And, and even in the midst of the pandemic and, and so the burnout that's caused, I watched a team of nurses care for me in a way that was unbelievable. So it can go both ways. Now, these teams are absolutely resilient and they're there for the right reasons. And I'm so grateful for everyone that's out there giving of themselves, not just their time and their talents, but just giving of their, their heart. Like a, when you're burnt out, that's the last thing you have yeah. left, <laughs> but they yeah. continue to give it. And I think that's why they stay. Yeah. And Thank maybe. you so, so much, Dr. Wishmeyer. And we're going to stay in touch and stay in tune for everything else that's coming. Thanks so much. Definitely. Thank you. To schedule a consultation and connect on social media, as well as find supportive resources, including case studies, ebook, episode transcripts, and citations to research, please visit the website www.daytoniceconsulting.com.